Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. We have been preaching through a series of Ephesians. Uh, Something great about preaching through a book is you get sort of a holistic view of, in this case, Paul's uh, letter, his theology. One of the hard things is, like, we have to preach on passages like this, right? Um, But as I did my research, I got actually really excited this morning, um, and we'll see why. So with that being said, let me start with a story. Um, Now, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I ended up in Chicagoland in 2009 because of college, right? Uh, and the college I went to is a, an incredibly funny place because it was just super expensive. And so you either were there because you were incredibly well off, or if you were me, it was because you got all of your financial aid covered, right? Or financial aid covered all of your tuition. Those were sort of the two schools, right? It was like super high end, uh, super low end. I distinctly remember a conversation with other students my freshman year that really highlighted that I lived in a different world uh, than some of my classmates growing up. Uh, we were talking about what our dream scenario is, right? Uh, and my dream scenario, and granted, it probably even wasn't this at the time. I was probably like signaling a little bit that I was like a good guy, but I was like, oh, I want a family. That was my dream scenario, which did, I'm doing okay. Um, and then the next guy goes, yeah, I want to drive my Lamborghini on the Autobahn. And I was just like, what? Um, we lived in two different worlds. Like, that was just not even something that would ever cross my mind, right? Now, if you don't know what the Autobahn is, uh, the Autobahn, I think I have a picture here. Oh, I have a clicker, actually. The Autobahn uh, is a highway in Germany. And the special thing about the Autobahn, you probably know this, it does not have a speed limit, right? And so people love to just be like, yeah, open roads as fast as we can, right? Which sounds really dangerous, but it is actually safer there are less deaths per miles driven than in, on American highways. So it's actually safer than American highways, which is pretty wild, right? Let me take you to a, a similar area, but with very different rules, right? A school zone in America where the speed limit is limited to 20 miles an hour. Now, obviously, this is a road. Obviously, it has cars on it as well, right? But in almost every other way, it's the exact opposite of the Autobahn right? Now, let me ask you this. What would happen if we were like, school speed zones are a safe thing. Therefore, we should impute them to other areas. We should take them to other areas. The rules that we apply here should apply everywhere because they are safe. And we just plopped a school zone in the middle of the Autobahn, right? Not only would this not make the Autobahn any safer, it actually would make it more dangerous. It would more likely lead to accidents because if people are going 90, 100 miles an hour and then all of a sudden they have to go 20, we're going to create some accidents, right? Why is that? Because when we take rules, restrictions, imperatives meant for a particular context and plop them into another area devoid of that context, rules that were meant for good can actually become dangerous. I think too often in American Christianity, because we go for the simplest and most straightforward reading of the text, 
uh, we can miss out on key context for passages like Ephesians 5 that leads to an unsafe practice of the word. In this case, that unsafe practice is patriarchy. Now, if I'm being honest, I debated on whether or not I should start with the negative approach here, uh, but I wanted immediately for us to know where we were going in order to assuage any anxiety uh, related to the ways in which this passage and others like it have been used and abused in the past. But know that I am convinced that even in passages like this, which has been weaponized for power for centuries, there is good news for us. So let me pray as we continue our exploration of this passage this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for uh, being able to gather here this morning, Lord. I just pray this morning that as I preach, uh, our focus is on you, not me, that we are about your glory, not mine, Lord. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your sin's name I pray. Amen. Okay. Now, if, uh, before I jump into the history of our passage here, I want to give a little bit of a heads up for those who are new or who didn't know this. If you weren't aware, we are an egalitarian church. Simplest distillation of that is that we believe men and women are able to occupy the same leadership roles, particularly in the church. The opposite belief system, just in this particular area, obviously other things overlap, of, of theology is called complementarianism right? A.K.A. men and women are complementary, complementary, that's how you say that, uh, to one another. Thanks, Scott. Uh, and we're made for different rules and positions. This morning, as you'd probably expect, I'm going to lay out the egalitarian approach for the interpretation of this passage. Uh, and some things may come across strongly, because I feel strong, but I also want to say this. We are also a church who considers ourselves to be theologically generous, uh, particularly in areas of theology that we do not consider vital to salvation by faith through Christ, right? Being theologically generous means we have and we create space for those who are unlike us. So we don't often, I'll, I'll get to this, but a lot of our, our sermons are going to be focused primarily on that which we consider vital for the Christian faith, right? We often don't preach a ton on some of these more secondary um, subjects because we know as a theologically generous church, as a diverse city, we're going to have people that come across, come in different places. But because we're preaching through Ephesians, I wanted to show, share with you what we believed. Uh, and hopefully, even if I don't convince you this morning, if you are someone who considers yourself complementarian, even if I don't convince you this morning, I hope that you can see that complementarianism is not gospel truth, right? So with that, one way to think of this uh, sort of ideas like this all of us have particular beliefs in a variety of, variety of areas, and those beliefs fall into one of three buckets. I don't know if this is working. There we go. Uh, it's co convictions, persuasions, opinions. Convictions are the non-negotiables. Think Nicene Creed, Trinitarian God, Jesus was real, he died and rose again, the Spirit is real, things like that, right? These are what you will predominantly hear from our pulpit, like I said. We hold these a bit more close-handedly. Persuasions, on the other hand, are things we believe there is a right answer to, but we do not believe that if someone is wrong on this, they are not saved or not a child of God, right? Egalitarian versus complementarianism would fall into this bucket, as would your approach to baptism, gifts of the Spirit, communion, what Christian marriage is, things like that. We hold more of an open hand 
with these, taking the posture of humility and learning. Again, having strong theological backing on our own persuasions, but recognizing there's a chance we could be wrong, right? And then opinions. They're literally just opinions. Something that does not have a right answer, but is a preference. What types of songs should we sing? Uh, what, should, what color should our curtains be? Things like that, right? We, um, with that being said, we are going to be living in the realm of persuasion this morning. And some of you may disagree, like I said, with my conclusions this morning, and that's okay. We can talk more about it if you want to after, because we know there is a right answer to this question, but I do not believe that where we come down on this changes our identity uh, as beloved daughters and sons of God. Also note that I will primarily be exploring the wife-husband relationship in the passage this morning uh, in order to show us a better way forward, just honestly because of time. I was already struggling with uh, this going longer. So know that a lot of the same points can be made about um, some of the other relationships mentioned in the passage. Okay, with that, let's jump into the context of Ephesians 5. So even the slightest digging into Ephesians 5 shows that Paul here is putting a Christian spin on what his readers would have known as the Greco-Roman household codes. You see, Greek and Roman philosophers considered the household to be a microcosm of society or of the world, right? If gods were over the Greek and Roman cultures in a hierarchical way, then that hierarchy should extend to the house. You see, order was one of the highest values of the culture. In order for order to exist, hierarchy must be in place. So as a result, Greek and Roman philosophers believed society would rise or fall on the basis of well-ordered and obedient households. So someone, uh, so someone in charge of keeping charge of that order, right, uh, had to exist. And you probably guessed it, but the husband was that someone for them. This dates back to as far as the 4th century B.C., I want to look at what, we're going to reference Aristotle a few times, but let's see what Aristotle says when describing the Greco-Roman household codes. There are actually a lot of examples of these, and they all look pretty, pretty similar, but we've probably heard of Aristotle, so. Um, Oh, I I wanted to make mention of this real quick. A lot of my sermon uh, is thanks to Dr. Beth Allison Barr, uh, as well as Rachel Held Evans. And so those two, if you want to read more, uh, are really, really great resources. Um, along with, I don't know if he's in here anymore, but Garrett Fitzsimmons, incredibly helpful as well, uh, part of our congregation. Oh, he's back there. Uh, hi, Garrett. Um, there he is. Uh, Garrett, Garrett's a lawyer, wrote an incredibly persuasive argument uh, for the, uh, compliment, or sorry, egalitarianism. And so, Garrett, sorry, but I'm throwing people your way if they're more interested in that too. Well, okay. With that being said, this is really small. just wanted to show you, uh, but... Uh, This is what Aristotle said about the Greco-Roman household codes. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and a third of a husband. Sounds familiar. A husband and father, we see, rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his child being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of the nature, the male is by, I apologize women, not my words, the male is by nature fitter for command than female. The inequality between male and female is permanent. The courage of a man is shown in commanding of a woman in obeying. All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. As the poet says of women, 
Silence is a woman's glory, but this is not equally the glory of man. Yeah, this is Aristotle. Like, people prop this man up. Um, in other words, what Aristotle is saying is that by nature, correct, it is correct for men to command and for women to obey. He said it is an inequality between them that is permanent, right? Roman officials in Paul's day believed this to be so important that they passed laws ensuring the protection of the hierarchy. And not only did they institute laws against female leadership, they also controlled spaces so well that we have almost no evidence of women in history uh, in this time. Historian and Christian Beth Allison Barr, who I just mentioned, says the unusually pervasive male citizen uh, culture of the Greek city-state not only subjugated women, but so well controlled the spaces in which women lived that little evidence of them is left. They're essentially not in the history books. And we obviously know they existed, right? So not only were they not allowed to lead, they were essentially treated in historical texts and tellings as if they didn't exist. This is our context where we enter into Ephesians 5, one in which male hierarchy and slavery are not only the norms, but they are law in a context which attempted to completely erase the female and slave experience. So a number of questions arise as we read Paul's retelling of the, of the household codes, right? And that's where we're going to sort of explore is like some of these questions that arise. First question is, does this mean that because Paul wrote about this hierarchical structure, we as Christians are stuck in this way of being, Right? Complementarians have argued that while the Greco-Roman world did not live this particularly hierarchy out well or healthily, it is a divinely inspired system because it is mentioned by Paul and there are ways to do it well. It's not beat around the bush. I do not agree. Two issues I see with this approach. First issue, those who interpret this as male and male-only headship will also often accuse egalitarians of capitulating to the culture. And that is often why people are afraid of egalitarian churches, right? There's a lot of words that they use for it. Yeah, listen to what Rachel Held Evans says about the Institute of those household codes today. But in this case, do I have it here? Okay, but in this case, it is the complementarians who have given culture, that of the Greco-Roman familial structure, the final word. In other words... It is those who interpret this as male-only headship who have been given the culture the say as to how they will live. Not our culture, though. Fourth century B.C. culture, right? Now, I admit, this is not a complete argument in and of itself, right? Culture is allowed to get things right sometimes. I fully agree with that. So maybe that is the case here. But our second argument here is a bit more convincing, in my opinion. We have only read Ephesians 5, but there are two other instances of the household codes making their way into scriptures, uh, Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3. In all three cases of these passages, where wives are instructed to submit to their husbands, the passage is either preceded or followed by instructions for slaves to submit to their masters. Look at our instance of the submission passage in 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay, similar to Ephesians 5, so we can make some of the same arguments, right? But, wait a minute, this is in the same way, right? Why? Well, if you look back at 2 Peter 2.18, which is just preceding this, look at what it says. 
we see the main idea. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. So then when he says, in the same way, he's referring to the ways that slaves submit themselves to their masters, right? Now, I have not heard a sufficient argument for the side that says the household codes still apply that also addresses the issue of slavery and the ways in which it would also apply if male headship would apply, right? So what, we're, what I'm saying is, if we're taking a plain and accurate, or a plain, we'll just say plain, a plain and simple reading of the text, and we're like, well, you know, it says wives must submit to their husbands. It also says that slavery is a thing, right? We know that that goes against the, the current of the Bible, and yet we're just like, well, okay, so that doesn't exist, but wives submit to their husbands still does. It, it does not make sense to me. Rachel Held Evans again says this, for if Christians are to use these passages to argue that a hierarchical relationship between a man and woman is divinely instituted and inherently holy, then for consistency, consistency's sake, they must also argue the same for the relationship between the master and the slave, right? The argument is usually to stay consistent with the plain reading of the text, and yet the plain reading of the text, devoid of context, institutes slavery along with patriarchy. So maybe, just maybe, by believing patriarchy is inspired, we have plopped a school zone speed limit straight on the Autobahn. So, next question. Why did Paul write these then? If they aren't universal truths, why would Paul include them in his letter? Back to Rachel Held Evans. She says, Paul's writings on the household codes are not meant to universalize or glorify the household codes themselves, but rather, rather the attitudes of those functioning within the hierarchical systems of the day. In other words, Paul is not pushing back on the household codes, but is reframing how Christians were to operate within the household co codes while still honoring the Imago Dei in women, slaves, and children. Paul was being more descriptive when he mentioned the household codes than he was prescriptive. But why wouldn't Paul push back is my next question, right? I think this is a question that only we would ask in our current day context. And it would make almost no sense to Paul at the time. So we have operated in a democratic government for our entire lives where protest is not only doable, but can even be viewed as good, right? Rome's rule over the area at that time did not provide a voice to the people. And so the thoughts of being able to push back might not have even crossed their minds, right? It was the water they were swimming in. They were trying to give guidance on how to operate in that water that still allowed for people to experience their inherent dignity. It is also very obvious from all of Paul's writings, he is utilitarian. Like, he is incredibly practical and goal-oriented. You read Paul, it is very clear his goal is just to get the gospel to the uh, non-Jews, right? The argument then could be made that Paul might have been aware of his context, but he also knew that Christianity was just starting. So Paul was considering the ways in which Christianity could still exist in the culture. Craig S. Keener explains that Paul's social statements are among the most progressive of his day, but if he wanted the gospel to gain a strong hearing in the Greco-Roman world, he needed to temper his radicalism with prudent sensitivity to his culture. See, Rome was incredibly reactionary to the upward mobility of those on the margins, namely women and slaves and foreigners. So as Beth Allison Barr explains, 
the New Testament household codes tell a story of how the early church was trying to live in the non-Christian world. They needed to fit in, but they also needed to uphold the gospel of Christ. They, add, they had to uphold the frame of Roman patriarchy as much as they could, but they also had to uphold the worth and dignity of, he, of each human being made in the image of God. Okay, okay. that was a cu- ton of context, right? Just to get where we're at. In what ways do the New Testament household codes then, we've already mentioned this, but how do they radically redefine the Greco-Roman household codes, and what does that mean for us? I want to highlight three radical differences in uh, Paul's version of the household codes for us. Uh, The first one, I think when we read the passage, we often from our American framework see see masculine authority immediately, right? The wives submit to your husbands. And I don't think that's totally on us. I want you to look at one of the main translations and the way they break up the passage. Uh, So this is the ESV. So, look at this. Does anyone remember what verse we started in? It's 21, okay? Look at the break, though. Do you see this? Wives and husbands. 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What did they break off? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? You see, I think the way our brain works we like to break passages up into groupings like the Bible, our Bibles do for us, right? Therefore, we can read a particular set of verses together, think on that one idea, and then move on for the day. I'm telling you, I'm not reading Ephesians through, like, front to end every single day, right? I'm reading a section or a chapter. However, we have to remember that these were written as letters, and they did not have verses or section breaks in them like we do today. So often, The ideas flow from one section to another, and we miss out on a lot of the continuity that is good for us, right? So when verse 21 tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we remove that verse from our section in 22, and we miss the framing of what this looks like, right? Yes, wives submit to their husbands in a healthy marriage, but the husbands submit to the wives as well, right? Also, I think oftentimes in our culture, we can somewhat be like a logic-driven culture where we unknowingly apply some logic to particular verses that we think make sense, but that the Bible doesn't mention. For example, when we talk about this earth not being our home, and I think it's what 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, like we live in a tent, right? Some of the logic that we apply from uh, the way we think in our culture is like, because this earth is a tent, we don't have to care about it. Or because this earth is a tent, we don't have to care about people that are hurting within this earth because uh, eternity is coming, right? But the passage does not say that. In fact, that goes against a lot of what Jesus says in different parts of the Bible. I think that happens here. We hear submit, and then we fill in that a command to submit constitutes a reversal mandate to subjugate. But that is filling in what the Bible does not say. In fact, the Bible calls on men to do the opposite, right? It calls on them to submit as well. And then look at verse 25. Uh, Okay, verse 25. Husband, love love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is radically different than the call on men in the the Greco-Roman culture. Whereas it was law that men led and subjugated their wives, this calls for a giving up of themselves like Christ did, right? How does Christ do that? 
Sorry, this isn't working. Okay, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being very nature, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in a, uh, appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ's leadership was not subjugation, right? Love that leads to giving up yourself reflects the gospel where Jesus took on our sin at the cross. Now, knowing that this giving up does not lead to salvation like Jesus's uh, giving up did. I, I just want us to know that, right? Like, a husband's giving up of himself does not lead to a wife's salvation. A wife's giving up of herself does not lead to a husband's salvation. But our love reflects what does, right? So our first radical difference is that instead of focusing on wifely submission, which everyone was doing at the time, the Christian household code demands that husbands do exactly the opposite of Roman law. Sacrifice his life for her, submit to her, instead of exercise power over her. Both men and women submit to each other in marriage. Okay, how else do the household codes um, take a radical approach? Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Okay, that's fine. That's not radical, right? Not radical to love someone as much as you love yourself. But in the Greco-Roman world, female bodies were considered, again, sorry women, I'm just reading, right? Female Greco, in the world, female bodies were considered imperfect and deformed men. Aristotle again, yeah, mm. Aristotle again wrote that females, as it were, a deformed male. And because females are weaker and colder in their nature, we should look upon the female state as it were being a deformity. Therefore, the, Paul, or the call of Paul for husbands to love their wives as they love their own bodies flies directly in the face of the claim of a deformity in women. Paul is qu- calling for equal dignity and value for both men and women, right? And Paul does not just address this here. The worst possible thing in the culture that could happen to a man in the Greco-Roman world was to somehow be related to the feminine identity, right? To be feminized. Yet, through his letter, Paul uses maternal images seven times to describe himself. That is more than he uses paternal image. Uh, paternal images. Beverly Roberts Gaventa explains that Paul not only gives value to the female body like he does here, but he is willing to hand over the authority of a patriarch in the culture in favor of a role that will bring him shame, the shame of a female-identified male, all to highlight the inherent dignity women had in the kingdom of God. This would have been good news to women in the first century reading. So our second radical difference here is that men and women have equal inherent dignity and worth in Paul's household codes. These things, like, come naturally to us, I think, sometimes, right? But the reality is is these were radical things at the time. Not only, okay, this is our third one. Sorry, I'm losing my uh, train of thought here. So not only were um, radical, or sorry, like the inferiors included in Paul's text here, But the whole idea of a church meeting together 
unequal footing was submissive, or sorry, was subversive to the Roman patriarchy. Because the churches met together, again, on equal footing. So th- this idea is radical, like slaves, husbands, wives, children, meeting in the same place for church. That is a radical idea, right? That was one of the sort of subversive things of the culture. But not only like was the meeting radical, where they met was radical. When they met together in the privacy of a home, they were meeting in what was traditionally a female space. So the male sort of like public sphere, it was seen as like male. So men met in public. They didn't meet at homes, right? Women would meet at their homes because that would be like more female place. And so when churches started to meet at homes, Beth Allison Barr says that Christianity was deviant and immoral because it was perceived as undermining ideals of Roman masculinity. In other words, it was putting the female space first, right? Now, I don't need to get on a soapbox here, but if Christianity was radical at its time because it included women, and yet, in our current context, Christianity is often used as a weapon against women, what are we doing? There is a better way forward, right? So that, that sort of leads to our last question, like how do we apply this? What is it about the subversive nature of Paul's letter uh, that is applicable for us? Mije Gupta, uh, while exploring this passage in his book, Tell Her Story, asks a similar question. How do we honor Scripture and keep it relevant today, knowing we don't live in a legally patriarchal society built on slave labor? The answer, he says, is not to turn back the clock and implement these structures, right? Rather, we do what Paul did. We consider our culture the way we faithfully enter spaces in ways that radically point to the inherent dignity that those society considers on the margin have. I didn't wear that super well. We enter spaces, we consider in those spaces who are on the margins, and we helped to point to the inherent dignity that they have, right? And we establish household codes that embody the new life in Christ, in a manner that captivates rather than repels the residents in the surrounding world. There is absolute ambiguity in this conversation, like the complementarians, egalitarians uh, conversation. I totally get that. But let me say this, and then I'm going to be in my seat. Scripture interprets Scripture. And when we take a few verses out of context of the larger biblical narrative, we run the risk of getting a lot of things wrong. And we often make mountains out of molehills. So with that, I want us to consider like the presence of household codes in Scripture. They must be considered in light of Jesus, who made a habit of turning hierarchy on his head. Look at Matthew tw- uh, verses, or sorry, chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, hierarchy enters the human relationships as part of the sin curse in uh, Genesis chapter 3, where God says to Eve that her desire for her husband, or will be for her husband, and that he will rule over her. 
But with the coming of Christ, Rachel Held Evans says, hierarchical relationships are exposed for the sham that they are. As the last are made first, the first are made last, the poor are blessed, the meek inherit the earth, and the God of the universe takes the form of a slave. When the overwhelming nature of the biblical narrative shows that God's kingdom is unlike ours and that it subverts power by uplifting those society tries to push to the margins, but then we take a passage like Ephesians 5 and we say that women, wives should submit to husbands completely, we are plopping a school speed limit straight onto the Autobahn, right? The Christian remix of the Greco-Roman household codes blurred the hierarchical lines between man and wife, between slave uh, and master, and between adult child and adult parent in a way that calls us to deeper love and deeper living for one another. This outcome of what Christ calls us to, in my opinion, is good news, right? Women should not have to pry equality from the grip of Christian men. The power and authority we have in relationships ought to be surrendered and shared willingly as we look to a better way forward in community. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.